You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Columbus Business First, newest episode of the Women of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Emily Bench, and this podcast features a sit-down chat between me and some of the sharpest and most successful women executives in Columbus. In it, we talk about the professional risks they've taken and the ups and downs of getting to where they are today. Liz Brown was elected to Columbus City Council in 2015 and is the executive director of the Ohio Women's Public Policy Network. Liz's focus on council is to broaden access to opportunity for all residents, especially through strengthening women and families. Her accomplishments include instituting a $15 per hour minimum wage for city job incentives and a set affordable housing requirement for city housing incentives. She led the implementation of a paid family leave policy for city employees and has established the Columbus Families Together Fund, which provides legal resources to keep immigrant and refugee parents in Columbus with their children. As finance committee chair, Liz has worked to make the city budget more accessible and transparent by opening it up to residents. Liz and her husband, Patrick, live in Columbus's Victorian Village, along with their children, Carolyn and Russell. Liz, I'm so serious when I say this. Like, I go to stuff all the time, and I'm sure you don't even see that I'm there, but I always see you, and I'm like, she's so cool. I'd love to just get to know her, so I'm so excited <laughs> that we get to just talk about all sorts of different things. Well, so. thank you. I don't often describe myself as cool, so <laughs> it's very nice that you just did. <laughs> yeah, um, I one of the things that I love, I noticed, I go to, like, press conferences or I cover sports business, so I saw you around a lot with the crew staff. And you became like overnight Twitter sensation with you and your son, Russell. <laughs> you taking him around to stuff. Yes, that was really fun. So I don't have childcare on Wednesdays for the baby, and which usually means they're like mommy and Russell days. Work still happens on Wednesdays, so I end up taking him along to things. And typically, they like yesterday, I went to a luncheon at Mary Haven Women's Center about women recovering from drug addiction, yeah. and Russell came with me. I brought his lunch. He ate lunch with all, a bunch of women oh learning about you know real stories of women in recovery. But that Wednesday, back in December, mm -hmm. happened happened to be the day of the crew announcement. So <laughs> Russell came along and I I was really nervous I wouldn't have anything, you know, uh, on theme, I guess. <laughs> but he had these pants from a bumblebee costume. Oh my gosh. And they were the perfect crew pants and Twitter liked it. Yes. So. <laughs> uh, they were like yellow and black striped. Mm -hmm. That was the cutest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. It was fun. And honestly, uh, it was it was a fun experience and he and he behaved well, which mm -hmm. was, you know, 
I, I took credit for, even though I did nothing differently you that day. You seem like such a good baby. My kid, I feel like if I had a kid, it would be like running around like nuts. Well, half the time that is him. But that day, he decided to behave well. But what was actually kind of gratifying about the experience is afterwards getting a lot of messages from other mothers um, and fathers, that, whom I don't know, that yeah. just wrote me, whether on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, to say... Yeah. Um, and usually people are working and caring for, for kids at the same time in some way or another. Yeah, that's awesome. But why don't we start with you just telling me a quick rundown of your resume, where you started, and what you had to do to get to you know being president pro tem of city council. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going to start back to when I was 18. When I graduated high school, I ended up taking a gap year before college. I worked for City Year. I volunteered with AmeriCorps. And City Year, there's a City Year chapter here in Columbus. Oh, okay. I was in the City Year chapter in Philadelphia. And City Year is um, an AmeriCorps program that um, sends Corps members into schools to act as teacher's assistants on specific issues, reading, tutoring, mm -hmm. service learning. I was in a middle school in Philadelphia. And uh, there's something about when you you're on the other side of the desk. You're not the student anymore. You're, I wasn't a teacher because I was only 18, but mm -hmm. I was a teaching assistant. And I was able to observe what happens in the classroom far differently than I could as a student, right, when you're just observing your peers. And I participated in these kids' lives and gained a real understanding during that time for the intersection between public policy and people's lives, right? That it wasn't just about the education policy set at the state capitol, which dictated how old the textbooks were, what the teacher-student ratio was. It was also about, you know, what uh, housing policy was. The child wasn't sure if they were going to have a safe place to sleep that night or if they were sleeping in a car the night before. It was a lot harder to learn. Uh, there's a difference in how a kid can learn if their parent works 40 hours a week um, at a traditional 9 to 5 or um, 80 hours a week or third shift. Mm. And working with kids really gave me an appreciation for how the system can fail them. Yeah. So I went to college and I thought I wanted to go into journalism and that would be my way to kind of contribute to the mm -hmm. policy dialogue. But I found that I, um, I had too many opinions for that. <laughs> hard to be neutral. <laughs> it was too hard to be neutral and fair and unbiased. Um, so I spent a year working at a magazine and that in New York and then left, came back to Ohio to start working in um, public policy, uh, government and campaigns. Great. So where did, when you came back to Ohio, where did you start in the public policy So I worked for a state rep campaign okay. and then inside the state house. That was during a time when we were actually doing a lot of education, education policy overhaul at the state house, which was really fascinating mm -hmm. to be a part of, part of the crafting of the state budget and all of that. And then ultimately, I, right, I mean, by the time I w ran for council, I had sort of migrated my way to um, working for um, local government. Okay. I was doing economic development policy work. And that's when I knew I wanted to run for city council. I really fell in love with local policy making. Mm -hmm. It's really community development work. Yeah. There's a different, uh, there's just a different foundation to it, a different vibe to it than yeah. if you look at state and federal work. Yeah. That's so cool. So then you got involved with city council and how long have you been on city council? I was elected in 2015, Okay, so about three and a half years. Okay, cool. So I know you kind of talked to me a little bit about how you started in the school system and that made you realize that you wanted to go into politics, but was there a specific moment you remember having in like an aha moment of, I really want to do this and I want to do this now for you? 
I did not have an aha moment. Mm-hmm. I had to kind of gradually come to terms with the fact that I wanted to run. Yeah. I think that some of my early experiences in childhood and then also in AmeriCorps built the foundation for me to really care about policymaking yeah. and government. And I really believe that um, elected officials have the responsibility to do good work Mm -hmm. and often do. If we elect people who really care, if we elect people who understand that public policy is not about black and white words on a piece of paper, but Mm -hmm. there's always a person at the end of that law that you're making who's affected by it. So I believe that public officials can be that. And that's why I always wanted to be engaged in the process. But I think in terms of me running, Mm -hmm. it it was kind of a gradual acceptance of, hey, this is what, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So let's go back for that for a second. You talked about how your childhood and growing up. So your dad is Sherrod Brown. Yeah. Do you get that a lot? I do, yes. <laughs> how do you feel about it? <laughs> well, I'm really proud of him. Yeah. So it doesn't bother me uh, when people, you know, point out my relation to him. Mm-hmm. He is a pretty beloved person, um, you know, yeah. really no matter what side of he the aisle. He seems so sweet. Like, I don't know, but he just seems so sweet. He is. He's, a, he's um, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, if you've had a conversation with my dad, you understand mm. people motivate his purpose in yeah. politics. He's inquisitive with everyone he meets. He loves to solve problems. He's championed the kind of issues that, you know, I hope to champion in my career as well because he really stands up for working people and middle class families and um, low-income people who want to fight their way to the middle class and don't always have a level playing field. Yeah. So I never mind uh, being associated with him. I'm very yeah. proud about it. It did bother me. It took me a long time to get the dispatch to write my name without including Shares I was his daughter. daughter. <laughs> yes. I'm like, at some point, yep. is my job going to be enough to mm. uh, uh, qualify me and not just that relation? Yeah. But eventually they caught on. Yeah. <laughs> what was that growing up with your dad so heavily invested? in politics like where what was your childhood like when I learned that most people out there thought politician was a dirty word it was like shocking to me right because my dad was my hero and I saw him do great work yeah I mean we would go out and about in in our um my, my, so I grew up in two places. My mom and dad divorced when I was little. I was born in Columbus, but um, my dad moved to Lorraine County. My mom moved to Licking County mm-hmm. after they divorced. And so when I was out and about with my dad in Lorraine, we would meet people and you know he'd always engage in, in honest conversation mm-hmm. and try to help them or dissect a policy issue or whatever it was. So I always saw this best example of what yeah. a politician could be. And it also really taught me... Um, it taught me what leadership should should look like in terms of, you know, sometimes you have to stick your neck out on an issue that's not popular, but it corresponds with your values. And I saw my dad do that a lot. I remember one time my sister and I, um, I think I was 10 or 11, my sister and I were leaving church with my dad and a man followed us out and he said, this is when my dad was in the U.S. house, and said, Congressman, um, hold on, wait a minute. And we stopped and turned around. And he said to my dad, thank you, with this deep earnestness in his eyes. And I was only 10, but I could tell there was something special about the way this man was thanking my father. He had done something that really mattered to this man. So we got in the car afterward. And um, I asked my dad what that was about. And he said, you know, I took a really difficult vote. Not very many people voted the way I did and it mattered to this person. What he then explained to me is that he had voted against the Defense of Marriage Act. 
If you remember in the mid-90s, um, that was something put up by right-wingers um, to try to divide the country over the issue, issue of marriage equality. At that time, it was very politically risky mm -hmm. to vote uh, against the Defense of Marriage Act. It was very politically risky to stand on the side of marriage equality. My dad, of 465 members of the U.S. House, was one of just a few dozen wow. who voted against it. Even, you know, huge majority of the Democratic Party voted against it. And so he had done something politically difficult, representing a swing district in Ohio, and he did it because his values said he couldn't do anything different. Mm. And then he fought like hell to keep his seat, and he did. That's what we want all politicians to do, right? Yeah. That's what we want our elected leadership to look like. So for me, it's the example I grew up with, but it's also kind of the paradigm I yeah. aspire to. Yeah. Is that hard for you? Like, those are big, really big shoes to fill. Does that feel ever daunting or scary to you? Like, being like, that's my dad, and I look up to him so much, but does that ever scare you as well? Um, I mean, I think in the way that, you know, it might be natural to have a little bit of hope, hope I can measure up. You know, I mean, that stuff is always in our minds, but ultimately... I'm proud of the issues that I get to work on. Yeah. So whether or not that that you know gives me a long career in politics or a short one, I'll be happy if I'm making the decisions that my conscience is comfortable with mm. for the long term. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about women in politics right now. What is the playing field like from your perspective? Mm -hmm. uh, what are things that you're kind of up against as a woman politician? Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. I find that to be a difficult question to answer, yeah. and I get it frequently. And I find it's difficult because being a woman in politics means so many different mm -hmm. things, right? Like, it's very different to be Sarah Palin mm -hmm. than it is to be Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. you know, or me, right? Yeah, like, I mean, right. it means something very different to everyone. I think in, in general... I like to go back to the fact that I hope more women will run. It helps to level the playing field for the women who come after them, yeah. first and foremost. But um, So when I look at the numbers, it's pretty clear in research that's been done that women win at about the same rate that men win hmm. once they throw their hat in. Women aren't at a disadvantage for winning once they run. Not enough women run. Something that gets on my nerves is I hear people throw around this concept that you have to ask a woman to run like seven times before she'll do it, right? <laughs> you know, and it's something that, you know, so everybody kind of pushes that talking point out there and yeah. says, because of it, make sure you're asking women in your life to run. And women need to be asked. Women need to be asked. Well, that bothers me because it sounds like women need to continue to seek permission for their own ambition. Mm. And I think that's wrong. And frankly, it doesn't jive with what I've seen yeah. in my peers who are running for mm. office. Women are running for office out of a deep conviction that they can make a difference in their communities. Not just like, oh, I feel like I should do it because you asked me to do it. Right, exactly. And they want to normalize women's political leadership. Mm. I think it's a very exciting time to be in office as a woman. The issue I'm constantly trying to navigate as a woman in politics is that for so long, our government has not, it still isn't representative, right? Half of all elected officials should be women if we were truly a representative democracy. Um, the same goes for women of color, mm -hmm. um, black women, Latino women. You know, It should track exactly what the population is if we were truly a representative democracy. We have got a long way to go mm -hmm. for that to happen. 
we are doing better now, but for so long we have lacked that representation, which means policies have also lacked representation. Things like paid family leave, which should frankly be the law of the land. Um, so it's natural that when women are elected, I really feel called to focus on women's issues because they have been given um, sort of a paltry level of attention so far. Yeah. So I want to focus on women's issues, but then you get siloed into, oh, you're the woman, mm -hmm. so you'll focus on women's <laughs> stuff. Let yeah. the men handle the economy, yep. you know? And mm. that's unfair. Yeah. And, and we, as women, want to make sure we're, we're pointing out that, A, women's issues are everyone's issues. Yeah. And B, women have just as much an understanding of finances, economics, yeah. all these things that kind of drive the larger political right. conversation. And you do that. Like you chair the, the finance committee, right? I do chair the what finance What is that like? Committee. What yeah. made you want to be like, I want to do that? Is it the exact reason that we just talked about? Or, yeah. or you do like numbers? <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've actually, I've never been a math person. I've yeah. never been a numbers person, mm -hmm. but I very much wanted to chair finance because I do so much in sort of women's rights and family rights. Yeah. And I do a lot of, of work around trying to lift wages too. So I felt that finance, the finance committee would help diversify the issues I'm focusing on. It would also, it gives me an appreciation for just how the city works because yeah. the budget is everything. Yeah. And then I also wanted a more kind of direct line into being able to develop policies that help lift wages. And the finance committee is a good place to do that because it sets our budget. Yeah. I mean, it also is the place where a lot of just larger projects in the city come through. And I also wanted to kind of shift the way that we talk about the budget in the yeah. city. I wanted to get it out there into the neighborhoods and less inside city hall. Mm -hmm. So we've pushed our capital budget hearings out into the neighborhoods. They don't take place inside City Hall anymore. We want to make them as accessible to residents as possible. That's cool. In advance of building our capital budget this year, we did 26 meetings across the city to get feedback into what people wanted to see on their block mm -hmm. and have sort of fed that into the process. It, that's a real sort of foundational principle for me yeah. in budgeting. Yeah. As a politician, I'm sure you get a lot of public scrutiny from people constantly telling you what they think. Mm -hmm. What? How do you deal with that? Is that something that you can handle easily or is that hard for you? It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's definitely hard. I choose to ignore it a lot yeah. because there really nothing good comes from trying to push back on someone who says that I have no business running for office because I'm pregnant. Hmm. Um, when I ran for office. You're the kidding first... me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, for sure. Literally, the reason was because you're pregnant. Yes. Yes. I got plenty of that. When I ran the first time, I was um, seven months pregnant when I got into the race, and I had my daughter two weeks before Election Day. Wow. And a lot of people were deeply uncomfortable with that. And you know what? That doesn't surprise me because we all know how people think. What surprised me more is that they felt comfortable saying it out loud. Yeah. That's... <laughs> wow. That's stunning. Yeah. I'm not going to, in so many cases, I'm not going to be able to change. I can't, if you truly believe that I can't handle having children and working a high profile career, then I'm probably not going to be able to change your mind mm. through a Twitter battle. Hmm. Um, what I can do is try to kick ass at my job and yeah. sort of normalize women's leadership. Yeah. What are hard things for you, like, in your job as a woman, whether that's juggling being a mom but also working? And I don't even like phrasing that kind of a question because that just – there's a lot of assumptions tied in with that kind of a question. But, you know, how how is that 
hard for you being a woman in politics? Have there any, ever been any moments where you were really kind of, you know, up against the wall and you're like, I'm the only woman in this place, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, there are there are times that I'm I'm the only woman in a in a room. I, there was more of that when I was working in economic development. I was frequ- oh, yeah, frequently I'm the sure. only woman in a room then. There's a really frankly diverse group of elected officials in Columbus and in Franklin County. So, I don't I don't feel like I am kind of the only woman carrying the flag among elected officials. Yeah. There are a lot of strong women that I look to as my peers and as my mentors. I will say that still Decision-making power often comes from uh, white male circles, and you know whether that's you know folks that have been around the longest, have mm-hmm. the most seniority, have the most money, you know things like that. And I think because we are in a time where we're making huge gains in representation, it's very exciting. But we're also dealing with you know legacy of not as much representation, and yeah. so both things kind of work in intention or in 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 tandem too at times. Yeah. What kind of advice do you have for a woman who is thinking about getting into politics but has no idea where to start? Because I feel like it seems like a very daunting thing to get your foot in the yeah. Door, you know. Yeah, it can be. Um so first of all, I would say don't worry about building the perfect resume. Do things that you love to do in your career and in your extracurricular activities. Do things that you love to do because that's how you're gonna build a record of success. If you look across at women who've been elected in Franklin County or who are elected right now, they have all kinds of pathways that mm-hmm. got them there. If you're really inspired to practice law, by all means run for off or you know go to law school and then um, you might find that you wanna run for office afterwards. Yeah. But don't feel that you need to go to law school to do it. Don't feel that you need to work for a you know policy think tank mm-hmm. to develop your chops or get a PhD to develop your chops. Do what you love, and then translate that into your political aspirations by getting involved in other campaigns and yeah. sort of finding out what resonates with you. Campaigning is hard, and so if you think you want to run for office, I would really advise you to. Um, get involved in a campaign first mm-hmm. so that you really know what it's like. It's not glamorous. Yeah. It's not the West Wing. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not scandal, whatever. You know, there's a lot of kind of political shows out there now yeah. that make politics look very different from what it is. Campaigning is about filling your days from sunup to sundown with community events, door knocking, raising money. You have to be willing to raise money. Yeah. Um, and so getting involved in a campaign and really seeing what it's like is the first first step that I would advise someone. Were you scared at all before you finally decided to run for council? Were there any moments where you're like, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) Yeah, I was pretty nervous, (laughs) um, partly because I was seven months pregnant Mm -hmm. and my daughter was due a couple weeks before election day. Can we please talk about that? Sure. How did you do that? (laughs) So, so actually what I found is when she was attached to me, inside my belly. It was a lot easier. (laughs) Kids are harder once they can kind of run around and do their own thing. Um, No, I mean, really, I was lucky to have a healthy pregnancy. Mm -hmm. There were some, I remember canvassing while pregnant, 
and people being very shocked opening the door when it was really hot out and there was like a giant pregnant lady asking them for their vote. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but I took a lot of water with me. Yeah. Um, I was well hydrated. My daughter was eight days late. I was due, it, she, eight days past my due date is when I had her. And so it gave me this like bonus period of time where I got all this extra stuff done on the campaign that I wasn't <laughs> counting on because <laughs> she, yeah, yeah. she hung on a little longer. Truly the hardest part was those, were those two weeks in between having her and uh -huh. the election because that's get out the vote period. That's a really heated time of the campaign when you're expected to be at everything and be knocking on doors and be recruiting volunteers. And it's, wow. it's the grand finale, right? Yeah. And I was caring for my newborn daughter, which is what I wanted to be doing, but it took me out of so many mm. activities and it, and it made me nervous about yeah. how I would finish. Yeah. I pushed myself a little too much. I, um, not knowing what it would be like to have a child, because it yeah. was my first one, I agreed to go to a debate a few days after she was born. I had like put it on my calendar, and I felt really bad going back on my promise to the mm. organizers that I would be there. You just gave birth. Right. That sounds so <laughs> like coming out of my mouth. It sounds so stupid. But I went. I went. I was three days postpartum, and I went. Mm. Three days postpartum. Have you? Do you have kids? Uh, no. Okay. No. So three days postpartum, like you're very very sore. Mm -hmm. You're like you have ice packs in your underwear. You're still bleeding. Like that's not an exaggeration. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I showed up at this debate, and I walk in, and I look at the seats, and I'm like, they're wooden chairs. Oh <laughs> like, no! Like the lat, right? Oh my gosh! So uncomfortable. So I sat down, and I did the debate, and it was about I was about 45 minutes in, and. I had my phone out for my husband to text me, and he texted me, she's inconsolable because she's hungry, which is so normal for, right. you know, three days old. They just want to eat at their random like times. Sleep, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Even though I fed her right before I left, she oh wanted gosh. to eat. And he, my husband is a saint. He did his best. But I got up. I told uh, my colleague next to me, I said, I'm getting up and mm -hmm. I'm leaving. Please tell them I had to go. And it was fine. No one cared. Yep. And there were two more debates between then and election day, and I didn't go. I sort of learned my lesson. Yeah. Um, that that was, there were a couple things I had to do. Yeah. Some work things, some work meetings I did have to take yep. um, for GOTV, but I managed my time a little better after that experience. Yeah. What kind of advice do you have for someone who, whether it's a kid or maybe it's another part of their life that is, you know, taking over a lot of their time, mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you have for them if they feel like they have to go to something. They're like, oh, I need oh, yeah. to do this. I've got to go. Yeah. What how, What stopped you from like doing the next two debates, you know? Yeah. Prioritizing and figuring out. I, I felt like, so during my maternity leave with Carolyn and the same thing with Russell, um, and I'm using the my kids as my experience, although there right. are other things that compete for priorities. But in that case, it was... I really wanted breastfeeding to work for both of them. I ended up breastfeeding for over a year for both of them, still nursing my son now. And if there was going to be anything that got in the way of that, it was going to be very low on the priority list, right? Because for me, it was so important to be there for their, their nutritional needs in that way. Mm -hmm. Every woman makes a different choice on that. But for me, that's what it was. And so I found that if I was able to balance her needs and something still fit in, then I would do it. Mm -hmm. In every season of your life, 
you're going to have a different thing that bubbles up to the top as your highest priority. Simply saying, well, my kids are my highest priority, that's too broad. Like, what is it about that time with your kids that gives you energy, that makes you sure you're there for them in the way they need to be? So for right now, my son is one, so he's 12 months, so I'm Mm -hmm. still nursing him. But with my daughter, you know, reading is a really important time of of our day together. So I want to be home to, to read to her. And I do not miss, Mm. I I really try not to miss a bedtime ever. Of course I have to miss some. Monday nights I'm at council and I always have to miss a bedtime for that, but uh, I try as often as possible not to because these, these years really fly by. Yeah. And more broadly about like kind of work-life balance and prioritizing, I recently heard someone describe it. Basically work-life balance is a myth. Yep, right. Right. (laughs) That it's going to be perfectly balanced. Yeah. It's a myth at best. Mm -hmm. It's like a conspiracy theory (laughs) lie at worst, right? To drive us all crazy. And she described uh, what she strives for as work life Jenga. Hmm. So I thought this was perfect. If you think about it, like you build the Jenga tower, Mm -hmm. right? And then you're picking out the priorities that you need to lift up to the top for that Hmm. day. And you're just trying to balance it out, keep everything okay, right? And you keep doing so and you keep building on and then eventually it yeah. all comes crashing <laughs> yeah. down yeah and then you build it again hmm. right and I found that to be such a beautiful comparison because it's true yeah sometimes my life crashes down every day sometimes I have it in balance for a month yeah but no matter what we rebuild it mm. and so I am going to practice work-life Jenga from now on I love that I'm gonna do that too mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell my boss that like Sorry. <laughs> so what does your day look like as a council member? Like, I feel like that's something where you ha- you're demanded, not demanded, but you're asked to be at so many different things. And then you are demanded to be at other things. There's meetings. Like, what does an actual day in a politician actually look like? Yeah, it looks very different every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one constant is that my 12-month-old is my alarm clock, for sure. <laughs> I start every morning with, you know, him being hungry. There really is, like, a whole day that happens in that 90 minutes at home of, like, getting everybody out the door. Um, yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. I can barely get myself out the door, so. Well, you know what? <laughs> I am, like, I am very comfortable with, like, no makeup these days because it, it just takes everything to get those kids going. Yeah. But no, so my day, I, sometimes I, on Mondays, I typically am at City Hall most of the day. Mm -hmm. So I have one of my committee briefings Mm -hmm. um, is what starts my day on Monday mornings, typically, and lots of coffee. And then we are often dealing with things that come up in advance of the meeting. It's a very City Hall focused day on Mondays. And then the rest of the week, some days I end up being at City Hall a lot. But most days I am out doing other things. So for example, yesterday I was at Mary Haven Women's Center um, Mm -hmm. listening to stories of women in recovery. Today after this, I'm headed back to City Hall to get a briefing from CARE Columbus, Mm -hmm. um, the Council on American Islamic Relations, on some of the threats that their community is facing among religious white nationalists, Mm -hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. Then tomorrow, there's a community event for the for during lunch. There are um, several community events I'm stopping at in the afternoon, and I won't see City Hall at all. Yeah. Right. So it really it really can the pendulum swings very far mm-hmm. on any given day. And you like that? I love it. Yeah, yeah I really love it. 
So you have obviously a very busy job, and your husband owns restaurants, correct? Mm -hmm. He's a restaurant yep. restaurateur, yep. as they mm -hmm. say, right? Yeah. So does he work late nights, or how does how do you guys juggle all the things? Like if he's, you know, yeah. I'm just thinking of like chefs, and I'm thinking yeah. like how how does it even work? Well, he, um, his best friend is his business partner. Okay. So they split things very well. My husband and I are able to make our schedules work. Often, my husband is working like he helps put the kids to bed or sometimes puts them to bed on on his own mm. and then you know goes back to work he wow. works harder than anyone I know and I'm very grateful to him for that yeah so my last question for you what is next for you that you haven't already done yet whether mm -hmm. that's on city council or outside council yeah absolutely most immediately on the policy horizon mm -hmm. is the capital budget process at the end of this month, so month of May, we are doing all of our neighborhood hearings for the capital budget. All of that information is posted on the city council website if anyone wants to take part in it. We do neighborhood specific briefings mm -hmm. on what investments people are gonna see. Um, then we take that feedback back and try to incorporate it into the capital improvement plan, which is our five-year plan. Yeah. We pass the budget loosely in the spring every year, so it'll pass uh, hopefully the beginning of June. Um, when it comes to affordable housing, we know that is one of our biggest issues mm -hmm. in the city of Columbus. We need to make housing affordable for more people all across the income spectrum. Transit is another issue. Insight 2050 just put out corridor concepts, mm -hmm. which starts to take a look at how public policy can incentivize high-capacity transit corridors um, and how our built environment can reflect basically smart growth. Yeah. We know we're welcoming a million people into this community over the next 35 years. Mm -hmm. At least that's what, you know, quote, they predict. Right. And so we want to do that in a smart way. And mm -hmm. transit is one of those really critical issues that will lay the foundation. And then for me, one of my constant focuses is on how we improve the education that kids get across our community. Mm -hmm. That really starts with early childhood education. It's one of my primary focuses. I chair the education committee. And most of what we do on that committee is take a look at how we're giving kids better access to pre-K when they're three and four and to high quality early learning opportunities before they're even three. Yeah. When we invest in a child um, in those early years, it pays dividends later in life in terms of likelihood to go to college or, or serve time in prison, earning potential. All of these things, are the foundation is laid in those early years. Mm -hmm. What people often don't talk about is when we invest in early childhood years, we're also making an investment in the parents because so many parents are trying to figure out how they can you know, work the job they need to provide for their kids and also provide the care their kids need on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, when you are working third shift or when you're making $11 an hour, it's very hard to find quality, affordable childcare. Mm -hmm. Something that we need to reckon with um, as a culture and we need to start understanding is just as much a public good as the water that comes out of your faucet, frankly. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like you get that, like, obviously it's not the same situation, but like Wednesdays, you know what it's like to not have childcare, mm -hmm. to like yep. understand that perspective. Yep. It's on somewhat of a similar level, not the same thing, but like you still get it, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. My kid doesn't have anywhere to right. go. Like, that has to be stressful thinking about the, doing that every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So these are my quick questions for you. So just tell me whatever is the first thing that comes, mm -hmm. that comes to your head. What is the biggest myth about being a female executive? I feel like I want to say something that has to do with like attire. 
you're expected to wear, I find that a lot of times as a woman in a position of influence, you're expected to look a certain way, which often involves wearing heels. And man, my feet hurt. I'm, yes. getting, I'm like getting older every day and my feet hurt by the end of the day. I feel like we need to like shift that Dude. paradigm somehow. Yeah. Another thing, I was actually going to say this when you asked about the difference in being a woman in politics. I don't know if this is still relevant, but I'm going to throw it out there because I think it's an issue. Men get to kind of cultivate an image if they're disheveled, right? Like Bernie Sanders... I mean, he does not look quaffed, right? No. My dad, he's right. not quaffed. Like, he has crazy hair, right? If I mm. were to come to work without brushing my hair yeah. and wearing an ill-fitting suit um, that's too long or too short mm-hmm. or whatever, no one would take me right. seriously. It's not charismatic for yep. you. Yeah. But with men, it's like, oh, isn't he authentic? Uh-huh. And women do not have the room to do wow. that. They have to look right. They don't have to all look exactly the same, but they have to look just right or they're not taken seriously. It is so funny you say that because literally this morning I was getting ready and my husband literally threw on a shirt, put his hair under the sink, combed it, and then was watching me while I was putting on my makeup. He was like, why are you doing that? And I literally said the same thing. Like I didn't say it as well as you just said it, but I was like, I know it might sound dramatic, but like, I feel like I can't walk. I, I do go to work without makeup some days, but on those days it's always like, yeah, she gave up today. Like, I feel like that's what everyone's thinking of me when maybe that's not what they're thinking, but I feel that pressure, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. Yeah, definitely get it. And also, when I don't curl my hair, I feel like the worst person ever. I'm like, I should curl my hair. And I was like, Emily, just put it in a bun. Like, yeah, chill out. I know. You know? I, but even putting it in a bun takes a little while. Like, yeah. There aren't, any, right. there aren't any shortcuts <laughs> yes. um, for women. Yes. Okay. What did you want to be when you grew up? When I was a kid? Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a poet. Oh, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Do you I do poetry in your free time? I was a creative writing minor. So I did, like, my, my thesis was a book of poems that I wrote. And I have barely, I've gotten a couple like published and kind of lit mags and stuff, but I've barely written a word in the last 10 years. It's so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel about being classified as a female politician instead of just a politician? Or do you get that? Because maybe you don't. I love it and embrace it and feel honored to carry the flag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Well, I don't know if I ever, if I necessarily ever like made a mistake mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. you know, and learned something, you know, and, and I've got some like enlightened advice that would have prevented my former self from making that mistake. Right. Um, I still don't feel enlightened to that <laughs> level and I'm learning every day. But one piece of advice I got that I feel I'm fully embraced now and wish I understood when I was younger is just the idea that when you walk into a room of people, you are never smarter than that room of people. The idea of, you know, you can do a lot of really good research. You can have all your facts lined up. um, And that stuff is important. Knowing the facts is very important. But when you get into a room of people and you hear those like real voices and those real experiences that present a different viewpoint, you're not smarter than that whole sort of body of, of, of experiences that can really balance out any level of kind of expertise that you come in with. Yeah. That sounds a little vague. I do think it's 
it's essentially just a lesson in humility yeah. that like yeah. we all need to have humility in our daily lives. You, you, you always have to take the opinions and the voices of other people seriously. It doesn't mean it has, it's going to turn your opinion and right. your voice 180, but their, their voices matter. And, you know, it creates that kind of tapestry um, when you work with all of it together. I love that. That's really great. Who is your biggest role model or mentor? Well, I'm not going to say my dad because that's too easy. (laughs) (laughs) My biggest role model really has always been my older sister, Mm. Emily. You know, when she played basketball, I wanted to play basketball. (laughs) I was really bad at it. She was a lot better than I was. She loved reading, and so I loved reading. And she is the the smartest person I know and just really lives her values in every way. She had her kids just a couple years before I had mine, and I also have learned a lot watching her be a mother. I think from the time I was born, she's probably been my role model, and it's funny how even into adulthood, mm. that has really remained. Yeah, that's so sweet. Well, Liz, thank you so much for coming. I had so much fun talking to you. I had fun too. Thank you for having me. Yeah.